You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Jenny. I am a Lutheran pastor, and I'm very excited to be here with our special guest, Pastor Emmy Kegler. And I'm Josh, and I have a bachelor's degree in broadcasting and religion, and I'm also excited to be here with our special guest. And I'm Emmy Kegler, and I have a, what in the world do I have? I have a bachelor's degree in religion with a concentration in ancient uh, classic languages, and Masters of Divinity from Luther Seminary here in the great uh, great city of St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm very happy to be with you both. Thank you for having me back. Yes, thank you. Very excited to continue our conversation. We're going to start with an incredibly important question. If you could invent your own flavor of ice cream, what would it be? This icebreaker brought to you by my dear friend and colleague, Nikki. <laughs> Shout out. I'm going to cheat because this flavor of ice cream. How do you cheat cream. at this game? This is right? very interesting. Okay. Wow. This, okay. this flavor of ice cream Here is a game and exist. I'm going to cheat at it. This is beautiful, yeah. Jenny. Okay, go on, yeah. go on. I, I set the rules and then I immediately broke my own rules, okay. which is very beautiful. on brand. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The reason that I'm cheating is because this ice cream does exist, so I did not invent it. But I like have the hardest time finding it. I used to get it like when I was a kid, but it's vanilla and mocha ice cream swirled with like chocolate chunks in it. It's really good. What would the name of it be? I feel like that's like you got to have a kitschy name. Yeah. See, I think when I used to buy it, it was just called French Silk. But like there's got to be you got to have like a Ben and Jerry's type name. But I don't know what it would be. So maybe we'll just crowdsource that. We'll workshop it. Well, I feel like this question broke me, but I think I think I, think <laughs> I got it. So, you know, like they have like cho- the cookie dough, but as a fun treat, and maybe they have it. I'm sure they do. I don't want the chocolate chips. I want cherry chips. Whoa. Because I love cherry Ooh. chips. Okay. Okay. Wow. Left field and I love it. Oh my gosh. Wow. See, this is what happens when you give me free reign. Like, this is why things need to be structured. No, I love it. More chaos. Um, okay. I, oh, we live within walking distance of a, like, small batch ice cream shop, which is <gasps> devastating because oh, it's, like, dangerous. just far enough away that we're like, oh, we're, like, we, like, this is fine. This is caloric equivalent because, of course, we're women and we think like that and we shouldn't have to, but we do. Um, and... It's very hard to improve on their flavors, but I will say Haagen-Dazs makes a spirits collection, which is ice cream that is flavored like alcohol drinks. I love that. So they have one that's an Irish cream. Um, I think there's a beer one. Yeah, a chocolate pretzel stout. That's right. I'm looking at the list because I was like, I can't remember all of this. But they have a tres leches. So it's basically like rum and caramel and the only thing that i would change about it is that i would actually make it with alcohol i don't want it just to have the flavor of alcohol i want it to also have alcohol like i want to eat ice cream and then be slightly buzzed after that is what i want that sounds like a dream i think that would just augment my summer um and i can only like i'm a one drink girl and so like just to have it with my ice cream like all integrated together would be perfection primo i love that i'm gonna have to eat some ice cream after this when i went out to refresh my drink 
uh, my wife was eating the ice cream, and I was like, oh, that looks really good, but you're not supposed to have a bunch of cream when you're recording because it screws with your throat, but that's a whole me being the <laughs> audio nerd again. It's true. I uh, I was actually going to say this last time when I said I was drinking iced coffee because Josh has, in his great wisdom, told me that you shouldn't have dairy right before you record, and I was like, I know this, and I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> That indicates to me that that is not the quintessential bisexual drink because isn't it supposed to be a oat milk iced latte? Oh. I might have to hand my card in. Yeah, that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Pride month's coming up. We can get it restamped. It's fine. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Actually, you can commit anti bisexual sins as a bisexual during Pride month and have it written off. It's your it's your like it's your gimme month. Oh okay. So you're good. Okay. All right, great. Oh, fair. Great. I'll just uh I'll just buy a couple queer indulgences and like Exactly. Exactly. Then you're fine. Yeah. Okay, can I ask <laughs> what's a what's a what defines a queer indulgence? Are we talking like old school Catholicism indulgences or are we just saying, hey? You know, in in my experience, it is very similar to that. But instead of giving your money to the Catholic Church, you give your money to a drag queen. Yep. Um, and and then you, you earn those points back. <laughs> now I want someone to do a drag king version of Martin Luther <gasps> or Erasmus and sell indulgences as they're like as part of their routine. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to workshop this. We're going to make it happen. I love this. Yeah, I feel I feel like it was Erasmus who was selling indulgence. No, it wasn't Erasmus. No, who was selling indulgence? It was um, John Tetzel, right? Yes. Oh, Tetzel, that's a good name for a drag king. Okay, we can work <laughs> with this. It absolutely you is. You know what? I've been out of the ministry gig, you know, I've been on leave from call for nine months now, and now I feel like I've found my way back into ordained ministry is like, this is the only thing that I'm going to do is I'm just going to do a performing gig all around, all around this great country as John Tetzel, seller of indulgences. There's, there's, okay, this is, I'm writing this down. This is fantastic. I just, I just want to give Josh props because in an earlier episode, Josh name dropped Melanchthon and now just knew Johann Tetzel off the top of his head. Like I went to a Lutheran seminary and I can't remember this shit. I told you I was, I was considering for a while. I was feeling it. I know. And apparently it's stuck in your head better than it did mine. You know, yeah, I I had a really good professor in college that is very educated in Martin Luther. And those classes were really interesting and fun. And That's awesome. Nerding out again. All right. Well, we are back with our fabulous guest, Emmy Kegler, for the second part of our Pride Month extravaganza, I guess. And we had some great conversation already talking about the parable of the lost coin and how we can read some of these familiar scripture passages in new ways. We also talked a little bit about some of the many challenges that continue to get in the way of people living their full, beloved lives. And, uh, and we're excited to be back to talk a little more. I was wondering, as we kind of get into our conversation today, if we could talk a little bit, um, Emmy, if you want to weigh in on other places in scripture where a queer reading or a queer theological interpretation brings the story to life in a different way for you. Yeah, that's great. I love that. One of the things that I've really loved diving into with is particularly a queer lens on it would be the story of the first 
Christian convert, the first Gentile convert who makes room for the rest of us. And I always like, you know, whenever I'm preaching on this story, I like to find out the ethnic background of my audience and then say, you know, so this is the forerunner to all, you know, okay, good Minnesotan pre preacher here. This is this particular person in the Bible who does not even receive a name is the forerunner to every non-Jewish Christian in the church. And that includes the Roman Christians, the Greek Christians, the Ethiopian Orthodox Christians, the Norwegians, the Finnish, the Swedes, the Germans. Without this person, we would not have Martin Luther. And it's the eunuch of Acts 8. And the eunuch of Acts 8 functions in this really interesting way within the story where um, it's this beautiful continuing expansion of the Holy Spirit's unwillingness to be caged. So close readers of the text will remember in Acts 7, I'm pretty sure, um, there's this whole dust up between the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows who are part of the church, all of them still being within Jewish, but like there's the threading the needle on this one here, but just go with me. Um, the Hellenistic Jews and then the, the more puristic Hebrew Jews who are having this dust up about who gets the food fairly distributed from the church table. And the church sets aside seven men and they all have Greek names. Um, and then they're like, Peter says famously, we will not neglect the word of God to wait on tables. Like, excuse me, um, I am the rock on which the church is founded. I am not dealing with your petty little church drama. And so they've set aside these seven young men to distribute the food and the seven young men have Greek names. So there's this like redistribution of power. It's a beautiful story. But then the great thing that happens is these seven young men who get set aside to do this thing so that Peter can go off and preach the word of God because God forbid he'd be, you know, waiting on tables. They start preaching the word. So you get the story of Stephen out of this. You get the story of Philip, who ends up being the evangelist to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, uh, verse 26 through 40. And eunuchs function as this really interesting place in lots of different ancient societies of this like third gender space or non-gendered space where they are people who were usually assigned male at birth, but function in feminine roles or in ungendered roles where they're not considered a threat to women for lots of different reasons. And there's power, you know, problems with powers of, of empire, um, having forced people into being um, eunuchs, you know, forcibly castrating those who are of lesser communities. But the thing that just really cracks the whole thing open for me is this sense of Philip evangelizing the eunuch, and then they find water in the desert, which is already a miracle in itself. And this Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip responds with the correct answer, which is that he says nothing. He doesn't speak a single word out loud because there is nothing to prevent the Ethiopian eunuch from being baptized. Not the fact that he's connected to the Ethiopian queen and has these systems of power that are un heretofore unheard of in the church. Not that he is not Jewish in any way. Not that he is a eunuch and would therefore by all accounts be excluded from participation in um, worship at the, the temple in Jerusalem, which we anticipate he's been coming from. Nothing of that keeps him apart. And it's this beautiful moment of when the eunuch hears the liberative story of Jesus, which I think he also hears the story of his own journey. Um, he's hearing Isaiah 53 of like, he was wounded for our transgressions. Um, you know, justice was denied him, but he was silent. Um, who can describe this generation? I think the eunuch not only hears Jesus's story, but he also hears solidarity with his own story, especially if he is in um, this very common situation of having been taken by someone in power and made a eunuch in order to serve the queen um, without endangering the royal line, the line's, um, you know, validity. 
And so he's been forced to live this life that is outside of the boundaries and finds out that it doesn't matter to Jesus. And I love that. I love that liberative act um, that Philip maybe probably doesn't even understand the, 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 the size of, that he's participating in, that no, there isn't anything to prevent you from being baptized fully into the body of Christ, just as you are, without requirements for restoration or change of your physical body, without denial of your ethnicity and your cultural background. You, just you as you are, as I've found you on this dusty road and this miraculous pool of water, you are welcome. There is no hate the sin, love the sinner in that story. I also like talking about how the eunuch is a really great window into the ways that we understand gender now um, and that we can't necessarily backread like what would the eunuch's pronouns be because because I, I had a beautiful conversation with my one of my New Testament professors who's now at Princeton and he's just delightful and he had done a retranslation where it used they them pronouns for the eunuch and I was like I love this thank you this is really good mm. and he and I had this beautiful generative conversation where it was like we don't actually know we can't just say all eunuchs would have used they them pronouns and trying to backread our understandings of gender or sexual orientation is very 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 nefarious and this understanding that we don't need to know everything about a person. We don't need to hammer down on exactly who, how they would have identified then or exactly what the nuances of their identity are now if that's not something that people feel the need to share. I think there's this, there's an impulse both within the church and within queer culture of like, let me just get the right label on you so I can understand you. And like, Philip doesn't understand what's going on. We in our, you know, 2000 years distance don't understand what's going on. And we get to move into this space of like, we don't have to, we don't have to know and quantify everything as much as we as humans like to put things in our little boxes. We can just move into this space of like, this is a fellow child of God, image of God, person who longs to become part of the body of Christ. Let us find a way to do that. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think one thing that Emmy, you're describing this this story in Acts. Something that I kind of wrestled with in terms of thinking about queer biblical interpretation is that sense of like back reading or like putting something onto the text that wasn't there in its original context. And I, th I do think that's something we need to be aware of, obviously. But I also think that we're doing that all the time anyway. <laughs> so like, we need to be aware of when we're reading in our modern assumptions about all kinds of things when we read the Bible. But I think it's also helpful to, I don't know, I be a little bit playful in how we engage scripture, you know, that like, and, and I'm thinking of a different example. Um, but I'm thinking of the, the raising of Lazarus, in John, because this was one of the first passages where I heard like, oh, well, there's a queer interpretation of this, which is so Lazarus has died and he's in the tomb and he's been in the tomb for four days and there's already a stench. Right. So he's decomposing. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. He walks out of the tomb and Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And he's alive. But the queer interpretation of that says coming out for Jesus to tell Lazarus to come out has a very different connotation in the queer community where coming out means something different. 
And there's one part of me that's like, okay, but like, that's not what Jesus meant when he said, come out. Yes, and, right? Yes, we, we can and should understand that story in its original meaning, which is about life and the power that Jesus has being the resurrection and the life. And also, we can add whole new layers of meaning to that by thinking about, well, in what ways do we experience the tomb in our own lives, right? And for queer folks, like being closeted can be like being dead, right? And it is incredibly freeing to imagine Jesus saying, hey, come out. You don't have to be in there. You don't have to be wrapped up in these grave clothes. Just be alive. So to me, there's sort of a playfulness in that of like, we can read the story on multiple levels. And I feel like that's kind of similar to what you were saying with um, the eunuch in Acts of like, we can understand that on all kinds of levels, talking about gender and race and identity and marginalization. And we don't have to just be limited to only seeing it one way. And I think that's where I really appreciate some queer scriptural interpretation because it opens up more of those doors. Does that make sense? Very much so. I don't know if this happened for you, Jenny, but for me in my process of, like, I think almost... Most of us, at least up to the millennial generation, I don't know, probably Gen Z as well is doing this, um, you know, receive interpretive practices to bring to the Bible. And then that opens us up into new ways, right? So I started with like just the very basics of like, well, but God is love and Jesus says to love your neighbor. And so like that was just, that was enough of the opening of the door of like, maybe being homophobic isn't the right way for Christians to be. And then you start moving into Fancy like- Fancy that. <laughs> what a, just, just, a, just a bananas concept. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it starts to open the door into some like basic historical critical analysis of how scripture is formed. And you start doing literary analysis and archeological and geological anthropological understandings and, and new cultural ways and starts, you know, just opening the doors into the beautiful depths of scripture and those spaces that created it. And the thing that really was beautiful for me was that um, the basics of historical critical analysis and what I was taught to call, I don't think we use these distinctions in the same way anymore, but what I was taught to call lesbian and gay theology, which was functionally just apologetics, like, hey, no, those six to seven clobber verses don't actually apply. That opened the door for me for so many other practices of interpretation that I, as a suburban white girl in the Midwest, would not have had access to. And that's when I was really open to like, beyond, you know, like second wave white feminist theologies, moving into like womanist theologies, black female theologians, um, Muharista theologies coming out of Central and South America, and then liberation theologies coming out of Central and South America, um, the theologies of James Cone and the black liberation in America, um, and, and like these other things that add so much layer to the text that I would have missed entirely yeah. um, without having just this little tiny door cracked for me. And I think, you know, we've, we've had this very earnest desire in the Christian church to find like, what is the one true meaning of this text? And then we, you know, the pastors preach on that, the people follow it and that's, you know, that's it. And there is one true meaning, but there's like 18 different windows to get to that space. And we've, I think we've really shut down like 
maybe down to about three of those windows. And the, at least for me, the postmodern era in, in my own like theological development has helped me walk to other people's windows. Sort of like I'm in an art gallery and I'm looking at a sculpture in the middle and I can't get to the sculpture, but I can walk to other people's windows and um, figure out how to see it the way that they saw it and be able to see like, oh my gosh, it doesn't change anything about the thing in the middle, but it changes how I've experienced it. And this like, beautiful expansive interpretation that would not have been open to me without my my entrance into gay and lesbian and now you know essentially what we call queer theology um of just understanding that one story can mean many things and then we find like the centrality of that story still draws us back to jesus and his liberating work so so you're saying wait wait a minute we're gonna go back the bible's not black and white no, it's red, Josh. Just follow the red letters. What? Come on. Get, get right out of town. You're going to say, too, that when it's been interpreted, words have been changed. <laughs> just, I mean, anybody who's got more than a four-day streak in Duolingo can tell you that much. One word doesn't always mean the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I just, it, I, okay, here's the thing. I get it, right? Like, I've studied enough American and Western European history to understand why we want the Bible to be black and white. We want the Bible to essentially be equivalent to science equivalent to like good rational philosophy of religion of like here is the logical step from point a to point b and point z about like why the whole world is set up like this and it's basically just this giant fantastic mechanical thing um that we pull the lever and everything works out just right and i get why we want it that way i get why we want it that way history historically and culturally and i also get why we as humans want things to be black and white because there is still a part of our brains that operates entirely on is there a leopard in this room Right. Right? And just like... Am I you, about to be eaten? Exactly. And if you activate that part of the brain, nothing else matters. Like, you cannot just lodge... You cannot have, you know, beautiful, deep philosophical conversations with a brain that is activated in the, like, is there a leopard in this room? Which is one of the reasons that mental health is a really big, like, thing for me, because you can't have productive conversations if your mind is constantly riddled with, like, these super deep setbacks on, like, I feel like I'm in danger. Um, you have to, like, figure out a way to to get that mind to to drop down to a different level. Like, like I can't have a rational conversation with my mind when I'm in a panic at the grocery store where I'm like, no, you are not actually going to die if you pick the wrong spice. Yeah. But my brain is saying that I will. And I cannot make my brain say to my brain, you know, it's like this whole thing. All that said, where in the world was I going? I did warn poor Jenny and Josh before we started. I'm like, I go on tangents. We were talking about why we want scripture to be black and white. So we want it to be black and white because it's easy for us to like work with um, culturally and even like evolutionary biologically. That's nice, but it's still not the truth. Like you can want things to be one way or another, but that doesn't change what they actually are. You can want Mount Everest to be shorter so it's easier to climb. It doesn't change the actual height of the mountain. The thing to me is that like when we can step outside of our, or at least I'll, I'll say it from my perspective, when I was allowed to step outside of a very white, privileged, you know, Midwestern, upper middle class, assigned feminine and coded feminine, um, and all the privileges and complications that go with that. When I was allowed to step outside of that, it was really scary to move into a place of like, well, what if the Bible isn't literally perfectly historically and scientifically true? And then I got into a much more beautiful and enriched relationship with it. When I began to experience it as this living, breathing document that so many other faithful humans had put their hands and minds and hearts to. When I began to recognize the mosaic aspects of it that like 
you know, individual pieces could be beautiful on their own. Some of them made no sense, but then stepping back began to draw this much larger, beautiful picture into which I was invited. Um, when I began to experience the Bible as, um, you know, a great library from which different books could be drawn and, and read and studied and put back on the shelf and that I could have preferences within it and didn't have to treat every single verse as, you know, exactly as precious as the other one, because it's just simply not like... It wasn't meant to be that way. Right. Like the verse where the, where God tells Ezekiel to bake the bread over human dung and then God, you know, Ezekiel talks God down to cow dung. Like that's not as good as, you know, John three sixteen, And that's okay. Like it's okay <laughs> to be honest. I do this every time I come across Ezekiel bread in the store. I'm always like, I don't think this is baked over poop. I think you guys cheated. <laughs> um, And so like there's just so much more beauty and joy and um complexity yeah like a, a like a like an invitational complexity of like not only is it complex but it invites you into the complexity of your own self and of the world around you and to be part of this beautiful like phantasmical spider web of how many things are interconnected in this just lovely way and we have the opportunity to get there and we instead just want to like box it down into black and white boo boring <laughs> yeah that's that's really interesting to, to hear you say that um because you know when i had that like spiritual growth of like hey maybe i don't have to take this as black and white i don't know about you two but i know for myself my faith went from like oh yeah the, all this i know this to like i don't trust anything and like you st i still have those like struggles like but it's and I think that's why, you know, obviously that's why it's called faith. I've gotten arguments with that people before. Like, well, I know this. Like, no, you you don't know it. You want it to be. You pray it's true. But, and I think that black and white interpretation, that really scares people. Because yeah, maybe I am doing it wrong. Maybe I am not worshiping God the right way. So... And I feel that's like that's a really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We like we live with so much uncertainty in our lives and like so many things that are out of our control. And I feel like especially the past couple years, that sense has just been so acute of like so many, so many factors in the world are completely out of my control. And then we want faith or we want the Bible to be something that we can just like wrap our hands around. And it just doesn't cooperate because it's too big and too complicated. But like, like you were saying, Emmy, I understand why we want that. Um, because it, it is hard when you take away some of the certainty. There's a lot more question marks. And sometimes you just don't want any more question marks. Sometimes you just want things to be clear. I've been thinking about um, something that I read and I, I cannot remember who wrote this. And so like, I apologize that I'm not giving proper attribution, but like, I did not come up with this. I read this somewhere, but it was, it was a queer perspective on the creation story. And so we were talking about things being black and white, right? Being one or the other. And there's a way that you can read the first chapter of Genesis in that way, right? There is light and there is darkness. There is day and there is night. There is land and there is sea, right? Everything fits into these categories. But then I saw this post where somebody was saying, yeah, but have you ever seen a sunset? Right? That yes, God made day and night, but there are these 
gradients in between those, right? Like, it's not a binary. And actually, a sunset can be one of the most beautiful things in the world. And that's clearly part of, like, the goodness and the beauty of God's creation, that there are things that are in between. Um that there is land and there is ocean, but then there are these beautiful in-between places where you have a beach or an estuary or, you know, whatever. Like, the spaces on the margins or on the, the kind of in-between one thing and another thing can actually be incredibly beautiful. And then the the kind of upshot of this post was this person saying, like, that's what queer people are, Right. And, and especially thinking about people who are trans or, or genderqueer or gender nonconforming to say like, yeah, there's, there is male and female, but also there are things that are neither or that are in between and that that's not a bad thing. That's actually a beautiful thing. And in the same way that a sunset is part of God's creation, so too are queer people, Right. Just because God made categories doesn't mean that there's no, like, gradient in between. So, sorry, I feel like I'm kind of soapboxing here, but I I just, I really <laughs> like that. that. Not, is that not what podcasts are for? That was my understanding <sighs> was what podcasts are I mean, that's what I thought. I know, right? I was so late to the podcast bandwagon. I'm like, this is so 2014 of me to be starting a podcast. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, I just want to say, so... I've seen that um, I've seen that understanding echoed in a lot of theologians where I often where I will cite it because it was taught to me most effectively is from Austin Hartke's book Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. Yes, thank you. Which is I think that really, is where I saw it. It's a really fantastic book. He just actually did a second edition. Um, Austin's one of my best friends. Like literally, like read one of the readings at my wedding. Like I I just adore him. We get together often for like, well, we used to do trivia night, you know, back in the before times. Um, we uh, we will put Austin's book in the episode notes so you can find yes, it. Yes, in yeah. the show notes. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a new second edition out where it's expanded and revised. Um, and he's added some additional content, updated some things. And um, linguistically, what that's called is a merism when we say like I've searched the house from top to bottom you don't mean you only search top and bottom you searched everything in between and so when God creates day and night there's this implicit understanding that God is also creating all of the things within it and like yeah you're absolutely right we understand that creation does not act within those you know that creation is not limited to those binaries and then all of a sudden we get to male and female and we go okay but that one that one is still a binary and it's like you do okay well you sure went ahead and misinterpreted this whole, all right, okay, so that, hmm, all right. And that's a that's a great example where, you know, I mean, you were talking about, like, we want, we have this, like, Western European mindset where we want scripture to work scientifically. But when we talk about gender, I think it's very funny that, like, both, like, good scriptural interpretation and good science will tell you that gender is more complicated, right? Like, scientists will tell you that it's not simple. Okay, on that note, um, because I can hear some people being like, but male and female is a fact of science. Um, did you know, did you know that ginkgo trees can change gender? So ginkgo trees are a, um, a non-American species that have been brought here because, from China, um, and there are male and female ones. And the, I'm guessing female ones, are the ones that produce fruit. 
and the fruit stinks. If you've ever been near a ginkgo tree that produces fruit, it's just, it stinks to high heaven. So everybody just brought male ones over. Perfect. No problem. Don't, you don't have the female trees, then you don't get the stink. Mm -hmm. They can change. They can change. They can change and start male trees, trees that have previously produced the pollen that produces the fruit, start producing the fruit. We see it happen in frogs. We see it happen in um, the clownfish. What's his name in Finding Nemo? The dad. Oh. The dad. The dad. The dad, in, the dad in Finding Nemo. A male clownfish without a partner will transition to female. Like, this is a pattern that happens in so many different aspects of nature, and we just remove ourselves from it because we sort of, like, we learned that there's a boy and a girl when we were four years old, and we never went further than that when, in our biological understandings of the incredible complexity of nature and science and the world and creation, and everybody just needs... Stop it. Go enjoy how beautiful and complex things are, you beautiful, perfect, complex things yourselves. Girl, drives me crazy. It's just like... We are inherently complex, living within a complex world, created by a complex God with a complex scripture. And like, yes, it's harder, but it's so much more fun and beautiful and joyful to just like move into the complexity, whether that's with a really good partner or a good group of friends or a good therapist or God willing, all three, that you get to move into this space where your complexity is celebrated and encouraged. Like, just do that. I think that uh, that right there is the note to end on, honestly. Like, the Bible is complicated, creation is complicated, we're complicated, and it's great. This is, this is the problem with letting somebody who hasn't preached for nine months get on a podcast. Like, I love get it. all the sermons out of the way. I love it. Love it, love it. Um, Emmy, we are so glad that you joined us, and the time has just absolutely flown by. Clearly, we're going to have to have you back again. Please, please, let's do. Yeah, that would be fantastic. But in the meantime, uh, just embrace the complexity of everything. I love it. Uh, that's that's our parting wisdom. Uh, Josh, you have anything you want to wrap us up with? Oh, I have so many things, So, but I'm trying to keep it so we're... Gosh, I mean, I, I, I want to end on that note, but there's just so many things else I also want to talk about, so... I might have to write some of these down and save them for our next time. But uh, like we said earlier, we'll have uh, the book descriptions in, excuse me, we'll have the words, words make sentences. We'll have description <laughs> in our episode description. We'll have a link to the book and we'll also have a link to Emmy's website that she curates. And if you have any questions, please feel free to contact us. And yeah, let us know if you have any questions that you want us to bring up for this topic, because I think this is something that's obviously very important for Jenny and I that we wanted to bring someone as awesome as Emmy on to ha have this discussion. So thanks to you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you again. Happy Pride! Happy Pride! Thanks for listening to Irreverent Bible Talk. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverentbible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.